Thank you for joining us today for the Church of Rock Calgary podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us or have any questions, please email info at cotrcalgary.ca. We hope you enjoyed today's message. It is always my pleasure to be able to share the Word of God with you, whether you do attend here regularly and are part of this church family or whether you're visiting. Wherever you're at in your life journey, whether wherever you're at with faith, I truly do believe that there's something for us all today, that there's hope for us today. And a couple of months ago, my brother, Russell, who's drumming up here, he preached a message called the Christian myth. And the premise of his message was that we as people, as Christians, often buy into a version of Christianity that's actually a myth. It doesn't exist. And then we face life and we get disappointed and disillusioned when we experience things in life that contradict what we thought we signed up for. I thought I signed up for health and prosperity. I thought God would answer all my prayers. I thought I would always feel this internal peace and love, but I still get discouraged and I still get hurt. How many of us can relate to that? I can relate to that. I'm continuing our series today on big butts of the Bible. It sounds funny, but the premise of the series is that we've been looking at some of the major contrasts in the Bible between our perception and God's perception when it comes to the purposes of life here on earth. For example, in week one, Pastor Ian explained that God's plan for us is not a life of anxiety, but a life of peace. In weeks two and three, he shared about forgiveness, that God calls us to forgive not just seven times, which seems like a good number. Someone slights you seven times, seven times is pretty good, but he says 70 times seven. Not that you have to do the math. Essentially, it's just you just keep forgiving them. And I encourage you, if you missed those messages, to check them out on our website online because they were powerful and they are relevant, I believe. So today, I'm going to pick up where Russell kind of left off in his message. I'm kind of linking back, but I'm continuing in our series. And my title for us today is Not a Fan, But a Follower. Not a Fan, But a Follower. I started thinking about this message a few weeks after Russell preached when I was reminded of a story from my honeymoon. Don't worry, this is G-rated. It is a G-rated story. So Lauren and I, for our honeymoon, we went to Disney World, the closest place to heaven on earth, Disney World, because we are major Disney enthusiasts. We truly are. Lauren teared up, choked up when we got to that Little Mermaid ride. And I wasted, I mean, invested a fast pass in order to get us there in five minutes without waiting. So we went to Disney World, but to get to Disney World, we had to go through the airport. And on our way through the airport, we got stopped. We got stopped by a man at a kiosk. And he was a very smooth talker. He was very friendly. And if you know my wife, she's very friendly. And she's also not great with like leaving and confrontation or being clear or boundaries, that type of thing. She's very sweet, very kind. So this man got her and he he said, where are you guys going? And we told him, we just got married. Oh, congratulations. And then he starts, you know, saying, hey, if you sign up for this thing, you'll get a free flight. Don't you want a free flight? You'll get enough points for a free flight. Well, Lauren ended up signing her name on a few pieces of paper and away we went. And a few weeks later, after our honeymoon, we received a letter in the mail with, guess what? Yes, a credit card, right? A credit card. Unbeknownst to us, Lauren had signed up for a credit card. Now, we didn't want a credit card. We just wanted to go to Disney. 
We didn't even care about a free flight. We just wanted to go to Disney. And what followed was an irritating process of getting spammed by the company to phone in and activate the credit card, the one that I did not want, and the one that I didn't actually even know I signed up for. When I finally got it all squared away, I thought to myself, man, that has got to be the dumbest sales ploy ever, that you would waste someone's time and waste your time to get them signed up for something they didn't even actually want, right? But you know what? When I was reminded of that story, I thought of another story. But this one happened on a mission trip. In November of 2017, I had the privilege of going to Haiti. Haiti's a really tough place if you've ever been there or you follow the news. And I got to go with a mission team, and we did a number of cool things, including uh, praying for church leaders, praying for churches. We got to prophesy. I got to preach. It was really cool. On our team was a dear lady who I will refer to as Martha. It's not her real name, but I'll call her Martha. If you knew her, Martha's very suiting. Um, Martha was very passionate about her her faith. She's very devout. And so the only problem was she wanted to lead people to Jesus. And the problem was her method of doing so. We had to use translators because we didn't speak uh, the language there. And so Martha would take a translator with her. She walked through the villages and she'd go up to people and she'd have the translator ask them, do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? She'd just go right point blank, not even relate a hi, hello. Just do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If the person answered no, then Martha would reply, okay, bow your head quickly and repeat after me. Just like that, bam. She'd lead them through the prayer right then and there, like after three seconds of getting to know them. Did they know who Jesus was? Did they even know what it meant for him to be their Lord and Savior? It didn't matter. Martha was going to lead them through the prayer. And if you make the connection, in essence, Martha was doing the same thing as that credit card salesman. She was making a sales pitch without even explaining the product. And because the Christian faith, I believe, is far more significant than any product, don't you think it should require a bit of explanation? Don't you think people should understand what they're signing up for? It's sad to admit, but many Christians and even churches fall into this pattern of evangelism, right? We often try to promote the Christian faith or the church as some beneficial social club or self-help group. And then we catch people when they're in this honeymoon phase of interest, like, oh, this seems like a good thing, just on their way to a good time. Individually as Christians, sometimes we can say, hey, come check out my church. We have a comedian coming and a cool band, and it'll probably be fun, right? Corporately, throw together some flashy lights, sing some pretty songs, Jesus, we love you. Give coffee and some muffins, tell a few jokes, and then try to sneak in that quick gospel message and see if we can get a few hands raised. I'm obviously exaggerating, but there is a little bit of truth to that sometimes. What that strategy of evangelism often results in is a bunch of people who become fans of Christianity rather than true followers of Jesus. And when the honeymoon phase eventually ends, because it will, when people experience trouble that they thought would be alleviated by this new faith, those people who raised their hand and said the prayer, not really understanding what it meant, often left feeling cheated because they signed up for something they weren't expecting and perhaps weren't even ready for in the first place. Why is that a problem? As long as the church stays funded, people live nice lives. Why is that a problem? Because this life, hate to say it, is short. Did you know that you will die someday? 
we just got heavy. Where's the funny preacher, right? It's not, not meant to be heavy. But did you know that just a few decades ago, think about culture today, think about culture a few decades ago, the topic of sex and sexuality was very, con- or, or was, was taboo, sorry, it was not common. It was completely taboo. You don't talk about that. But the concept of death and dying was more common, especially when you have wars going on, things like that, because you have it very prevalent. But if you look at today, the reverse is true. Sex is everywhere, and no one wants to talk about death and dying. We like to talk about long life. YOLO, right? Just do it all, right? Fill that bucket list. You do you. We live, we just live each day as if we'll live forever. We make choices as if we'll always be here. But the Bible is very clear that when you die, because you will, you will go somewhere based on how you spent your life here on earth. And the location you end up in is not based on whether you raised your hand and said a quick prayer, or even whether you attended church semi-regularly, or whether you were an overall decent person. When you and I, where you and I end up for eternity is determined by whether we were followers, not fans of Jesus. Where does this come from? In the Gospel of Matthew, there are four Gospels in the Bible. They all depict the life story of Jesus from four different eyewitnesses, four different accounts and stories. And Jesus had been living the past three years of his life doing great miracles and teaching powerful sermons. But then he took a little bit of a twist. And he started to talk about his coming death. And people didn't like that. Peter, who was one of his disciples, even tried to rebuke Jesus telling him, no, that won't happen. You're supposed to become this great ruler and conqueror who's going to drive out the Romans, right? He can't die. But, and there's our but, Jesus knew that his, God's perception of what it means to truly live this life to the full is so different than what our perception is. And so he says this to those who are following him at the time. In Matthew 16, 24 to 26, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Again, you might be thinking this This is a little bit heavy, waiting for the light moment. My goal today is not to be heavy and depressing, but I do believe this is a serious topic. And my goal is that we would learn this morning to identify and forsake fan-based Christianity and instead not feel condemned, but be empowered to truly follow Jesus into the hope, the hope and eternity that he has for us because our eternity is actually at stake if we don't. So not a fan, but a follower. So you're probably wondering, okay, bracing myself, just give give it to me straight, Casey. What's the difference between a fan and a follower? And here's the thing. I could respond with a whole list of qualities and characteristics that uh, distinguish between the two that you may not even agree with. I could talk about lifestyle choices or habits or decisions or actions or two contrasting portfolios of people down to what they wear except not actually. Thankfully, it doesn't matter what you wear. But in light of the word of God, I believe there are two primary distinctions between a fan 
and a follower of Jesus. And they've always been there right in front of us for all time. The first distinction is this. A fan of Jesus is committed to life on earth, but a follower of Jesus is committed to eternity. Let me say it again. A fan of Jesus is committed to living for this life. They're focused on the 60 to 80 to 110 years that they have here. But a follower of Jesus is committed to eternity. A picture my dad often likes to use that I don't have up there is, are you living for the dot or are you living for the arrow? The dot is a blip. The arrow is continuous and ongoing. Those who live as fans are fixated on getting the most out of this life. As a fan, we measure our success and our purpose by the world's standards. Think about this. As long as I work hard, fight fair, contribute to society, I can retire with ease. I can make lots of money and buy lots of toys. I can travel the world and eat lots of food. I might even help fund a nonprofit. Heck, I'll even give to the church. I may even mentor other people, help them to follow in my footsteps. I'll learn skills and apply them for good causes. I'll get married, multiply myself with a few kids, teach them to live moral lives, set them up for a prosperous future, and away we go. When I get old, I'll phase out with some cruises, golf trips, and fine dining. And when I die, I'll invest all my money into charity. I'm a good person. Much of the world has committed, I sound like I'm joking, but much of the world, if we're honest, has committed to some variation of that narrative, especially North Americans. And if you look around the church, if I look at myself, you'll find that many of us Christians also subscribe to that narrative. The only difference is that we also manage to profess the name of, J of Jesus here and there. And we go to church, wake up early. But there's a problem with what I just described as our measure of success in the world. The problem is it isn't actually affirmed by the Bible. The whole narrative of scripture is full of metaphors that teach about how brief, temporary, and transient life on earth is. It uses metaphors such as a mist. Life is described as a mist, a breath, a wisp of smoke, and a fast runner. Something that is here one moment and it's gone the next. And when it's gone, when we die, it's made very clear that we will stand before the throne of God, before Jesus himself, and be judged on what we did with this life. And it's at that moment that your life here on earth will flash before your eyes and your eternity will be determined in light of it. And do you know how to know the scary part? As if that's not scary enough. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, before that passage that I read, Jesus uses the example of a narrow gate for the way into heaven. And he says this, Matthew chapter 7. He says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many, many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few will find it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, what day? the day that you and I die, the day that we stand before him. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out 
demons and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Wow. Look at that closely. These were people, these were not just unbelievers. These were people who actually performed great wonders and deeds in their lifetime. All of which, if you think about it, the things that were listed, they all require supernatural power. Prophesy, healing and miracles, driving out demons. All in the name of Jesus. And yet Jesus tells them plainly, I never knew you. And he cast them away. That is so hard to fathom. The more I read that, I can't wrap my head around that. How did he not know them? Didn't they live good lives? Didn't they do good things? Didn't they say the prayer, go to church and call in the name of Jesus? Perhaps. But the evidence of their life on earth proved them to be a fan, not a follower. They walked the broad road, the easy path. Did they manage to accomplish some intrinsically good things along the way? Yes, they did, but that's the point. You cannot earn your way into heaven. You must enter through the narrow gate. You have to live, not for today, but live committed to eternity. Preparing for the moment when you too will stand before Jesus, when your investment on earth will flash before your eyes in a brief whisper. Will Jesus know you as a follower or will you be unrecognizable as a mere fan? And here's the thing. My desire is that we'd all make it, that we'd make it together. I want to make it, that we'd all be counted as followers. But it's not just about being a good person. And if it's not just about that or doing good works or going to church or even accepting Jesus into your heart, then what is it? How do we enter through the narrow gate? How do we commit to eternity? I'm glad you asked. In order to prepare for and commit to eternity as a follower, you and I have to commit to lose. Followers commit to lose. What do I mean? How many of you like to win? I like to win. I think you'd have to be out of your mind to enjoy losing. Bonnie, I know you like to win. I know that even my wife likes to win, even when she says she doesn't. I've seen her competitive side. We all like to win, and the world loves to win. We define what it means to win, and then we, we have systems in place to worship winners. We worship success and fame. Think about Hollywood and the Grammys, how big of a deal it is. We worship achievement and accomplishments and records. Sports are an excellent example. We are the champions, no time for losers. But here's the problem, the big problem, little problem with winning. Jesus didn't come to win, not by our standards. Peter wanted him to win. The whole Jewish race, the whole Jewish people wanted a Messiah who would win by delivering them from the Romans, conquering them in brutal, victorious warfare. But what did Jesus do? He came. And he lost. In the peak of his power, Jesus gave up his life to be brutally murdered on a cross. And the people were devastated. The crowds that once followed him scattered. Why? Because fans hate to lose. And this was a crowd of fans. When the going gets tough, the fans get going. Literally. Think about a Flames game. Down five to one, three minutes left in the game. What happens? A max exodus. 
people start peeling out. You have a few faithful ones, but really everyone figures it's a lost cause. Might as well leave. I hate to lose. And I don't want to be gloated at by the opposing fans. Yet sometimes, how many of you know, sometimes you miss out on an amazing comeback when you're quick to peel out. I'll give you a brief little Flames game example. My brother and I were blessed with tickets years ago. And if you know us, my, this is my younger brother to be distinguished from Russell. Russell is a clear Flames fan. Linda and I just thought, hey, it'd be a good time. It's a free show. Let's go. So we go, and along the way on the C train, a guy in a Flames jersey is, he's like, you going to the game? Yeah, I'm going to the game. And he just starts talking to me about Flames stats and things going on. And what do you think about this person? You think he's going to be up to it? And I'm like, sure. Okay, yeah. I know Goudreau. I think that's all I know. That's a good guy, right? I think that's about it. We go to the game, and it was like the slowest game ever. I think it was about three to zero, five minutes remaining. Flames were not winning. So what did we do? Linda and I beat the crowds. Let's leave the game. So we left. And what happened? The Flames ended up scoring three goals, going into overtime and winning the game. And my brother, Russell, who is a big Flames fan, was infuriated that we had left because apparently it was an amazing comeback. And he's like, what? You just wasted that. And I thought, I don't care. I missed the crowds. It was good. Linda and I were like sub fans. We weren't really even friends. But here's the truth, bringing it back to our scripture. Here's the truth that Jesus knew that the fans didn't stick around long enough to find out. What Jesus knew was that by losing in this life on the cross, he was winning for eternity. He actually won our eternity. He made it possible for us to know and experience God's love and to enter a long eternal life with him. But here's the catch. If anyone wanted to come after him to be a true follower of his, they had to commit to losing as well. Remember our first passage. I'll say it again. Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Followers lose. It's a great paradox of the Christian faith. You can gain the whole entire world. Win by every standard that this world has constructed and yet still lose your soul in the end. But if you'll deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow Jesus, you'll win in eternity. The Apostle Paul wrote much of the New Testament. He says it this way in Philippians 1. Just a short little phrase. For me, for to, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. When I die, I gain eternity. But while I live, I follow Jesus. I walk the narrow road. I deny myself. I lose and lose again everything for him because he lost everything for me. Hear this. If you're into what's the why behind it, right? We have Simon Sinek. What's the why? If eternity is the why of Christianity, the vision and hope we are living for, what we will gain by following Jesus, why we do this Christian thing, then losing is the how. How we accomplish the mission, how we follow Jesus. If you read the Bible, Jesus actually makes it pretty clear what it means to follow him. Followers don't store up treasures here on earth. They store up for heaven. How? 
by losing everything for him, body, mind, and spirit. Followers lose their pride and hatred and instead show love to their enemies. Followers lose out on the lustful cravings of the world, the fast food, entertainment, and pleasure to meet any type of drive you have in an instant. And instead, they fix their thoughts on pure and admirable things. Followers lose their time and energy, not just when it's convenient, not just when it's comfortable, but they regularly lose their time and energy to take care of the poor, the widow, and the orphan. We have an awesome team led by Jerry Klein here at the church that once a month regularly and just yesterday goes to the mustard seed and takes care of the homeless there. Followers lose their money because it wasn't theirs to begin with and they understand that it's better to give than to receive. Followers lose their comfort. They go wherever and do whatever God asks regardless of location or climate regardless of the locals and the dangers, regardless of the length of time or whether they'll make it home alive. As a follower, you're willing to lose it all for Jesus because he lost it all for you. But you might be thinking, why? (laughs) Why do we have to lose in this life? Doesn't God want me to be happy? Doesn't he want me to experience this life to the full? Why can't we just win in both lives? And here's the truth. And if you and I are honest with ourselves, I think if we think about it, we'll agree that if we win in this life, we won't ever truly know Jesus. Why? Because we won't need to. We won't need him. We'll be competent and successful on our own. We'll live for ourselves. Pleasure, indulgence, success. Are those things inherently bad? No, but you and I are. That's the problem. Left to our own devices, we hurt people. We hurt ourselves. We're immoral and broken. We might have some good days, but if you kept a track record of your bad days, you're not a very great person. And it's all because of a thing called sin. A crime committed by all of us that is deserving of eternal separation from God. Whether you're a serial killer or a serial luster or just a serial liar, it really isn't that bad. There's no sin too big or too small. It all separates us from God. And when we commit to winning in this life, we get further and further away from God. We get puffed up with pride and arrogance. We lose value for other people and we focus on ourselves. Just think about it. I don't really follow celebrities, but I know some people do and no judgment. But think about all the stupid things that famous people have done that have been caught on camera for all of us to know. Why? Because they get so successful They feel they have arrived, and now they can kind of do what they want. But they can't, and they fall, and they fail. Deep down, if we're honest, if we had the opportunity, fame, wealth, prosperity, no rules, I think we might actually all choose that, to answer to no one, to be our own God. But Jesus came not just to be our acquaintance or a celebrity, but to be our savior, our guide, our healer, God as our father. But it requires that we draw near, that we get away from the sidelines, that we follow closely. And to do that, we have to lose in order to gain. We have to lose so that we can follow. We have to lose so that we can come to know the God who loves us. The apostle Paul, who I quoted previously, he says it this way. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, talking about Jesus, 
as the truth is in Jesus. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Put off your old self and put on your new self. That's what it means to be a follower. We lose as a fan in order to win as a follower. What happens if I don't commit? <laughs> you do have a choice. That's a good thing. You don't have to come here and be like, whoa, gun to your head. Nope, you have a choice. We all have a choice. Can I still be a Christian if I don't commit? Well, you can pretend to. You can think you are. You can still worship, raise your hands. You can still come to church. It's all good. But no, you can't really be a follower if you don't commit. Because Christians follow Jesus. Christians lose. When we pursue the things of this world first, and yet still try to profess the name of Jesus, we commit the crime of being only a sideline fan of the gospel, rather than a true follower of Jesus. And it's in that moment that we're in danger of missing eternity, missing the narrow gate. In essence, let me put it this way. If you fail to lose in this life, and you can choose to, you'll end up losing in the next. If you fail to lose in this life, you'll end up losing in the next. So we might as well pack it in, right? That's depressing. Let's go home and have lunch. But here's the cool part. We're not done yet. It's actually God's desire that no one should miss the gate, that no one should miss the boat, that none should perish. In 2 Peter, I don't think I have the scripture up there. It says that the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What is repentance? It's losing. It's losing your sin, losing your independence, and saying, God, I need you. And the beautiful thing is God is patient with us. All this talk of losing has probably made Christianity sound pretty crummy. And I wouldn't blame you if that's what you're thinking. But here's what we have to get. Here's what I was saying regarding the songs we were singing. The God we believe in is actually a loving father, not a cold taskmaster. His call for us to lose isn't because he's cruel and heartless. It's because he created us with a hope and future in mind, one that involves eternal bliss and eternal relationship with him. There's a story in the Bible I'm sure many of you are familiar with. It's called it's become known as the prodigal son. I don't think Jesus called it that, but people have called it that. And a paraphrase of the story is that the son goes to his father and essentially demands his inheritance now. His father's not even dead yet. And he just says, give me, give me my inheritance outright. He wants enough money, essentially, to go out and win on his own. Not willing to work and wait for his father to pass it down to him. So what does the father do? Slaps him upright, says, get back in line, wait your turn. No, he actually says, okay, here's your inheritance. Go do what you will. The son takes it and he begins to win in life. He wins with fame, pleasure, success, happiness. He's got it all. But time passes, money is spent, and then as the world would have it, a famine hits. Times get tough. When he's finally wasted all of his money, and he's now wasting away himself at rock bottom. He thinks to himself, 
what would dad think of me? I'm as good as dead, and I no longer deserve to be considered a son. But what if, what if I go back, and what if I could at least be a slave? So he does. He packs it up, and he goes home, only to discover that he obviously never really knew his father in the first place. How do I know? Because his father wouldn't accept him as a slave. His father had always known and always loved him as a son because he created him to be a son. And he couldn't see him any other way. But the son didn't see that before. He didn't realize that he was already accepted by his father and that he didn't need to try and win acceptance in the world. He was so unwilling to lose his pride, arrogance, and independence that he failed to recognize the assurance of sonship he already had with his father. See, we can hear a message like this, or we can hear about the church, or we can hear about Christianity, and we can think of God as cruel, heartless, just a party pooper, right? I have to lose in order to get my eternity? That does not sound like a good deal, right? God sounds heartless. He just sounds like he wants robots to just do his little tasks and follow his rules. But that's not it at all. That God actually loved us, created us to be a son, son and daughter, gender inclusive, to be a son and daughter, to be his children, to be in relationship with him. You know, he actually created us with, there was no sin. If you look back, we think, oh, God's so cruel. No, we did it. We did it. You might say, well, I didn't have the choice. Adam and Eve did it, if they're even real. They did it. Why do I have to inherit that? Well, have you sinned? Again, look at your track record. Have you sinned? It takes one tiny little thing. And that deserves separation from God for eternity. But because God created us as his children, he had a plan. You and I were created to know God. But the problem was sin. And our sin would forever hold us back from truly knowing him as our father. Because our sin keeps us in a constant struggle to win in this life. That's what happens. Why do we numb? Why do we binge? Why do we hide? Why do we hurt? Because we face rejection. We face insecurity. And we want to win. We want to be seen as winners. Someone who's worth loving, worth accepting, worth knowing. And so we keep trying to win. We keep trying to win. We keep trying to win. But that spurs us further and further away from God because he wants to say, you already have my acceptance. You're already loved. Keeps us in a constant struggle to win, to leave home, leave our father, win the approval of others. So what did God do? Did he smite us? Did he condemn us? Did he create a hell and say, you're all going there. Doesn't matter how hard you try. No. God lost. He lost for us. He sent down his only son to walk among us, to labor with us, to show his love for us. And then he got up on that cross and lost his life for you and me. He lost so that you and I had a winning chance that we could follow him, find that narrow gate, and enter into eternity. And listen, he desperately wants us to find and choose that narrow path. 
a life of abundance and hope with him. A life with no more striving, no more toiling, no more pain or rejection or hardship. But in order to receive it, in order to commit to eternity, we have to do one thing. We have to lose. Lose and lose again. And it's hard to do, and it's heavy, and it hurts. And can I be real honest with you? I get up here and I sound like, whoa, he's got a bunch of answers. He's got a bunch of confidence. Here's the reality. I don't actually usually want to be up here. (laughs) And I don't usually really enjoy preaching this type of message. By the time Friday hits and I'm preparing for Sunday, I lose all my confidence. I don't want to do this. I feel insecure. What if I'm not hearing from God? What will people think of me, right? Are people going to leave the church? Are we going to lose people? Are we going to lose money? Is my dad going to come back and be like, Casey, you just killed the church, right? <laughs> Every message, there's a tiny fear that maybe that'll happen. So I'm not up here to say, I've got it all together, to say, come on, get in line. I actually lose all confidence. But it's, God's been teaching me that it's in that moment that I'm starting to win. Why? Because God says that when you're weak, I'm strong. When you're low, I'm high. I see everything. When you're limping, I'm there to hold, hold you up, right? When you lack faith, God's not here beating on your head saying, have more faith. Come on. He says, just have faith the size of a mustard seed. I'll do the rest. You just plant the seed. I'll grow the tree. It's all you got to do. Don't worry about the life. Don't worry about your results. Don't worry about where, what, what, what you're going to, when you get to the end of your life, don't look around. Don't compare. Don't look at other people. He says, just you and me. When you're weak, I'm strong. I'll hold you. We'll make it through. It'll be okay. If we want to do the Christian thing, we have to get weak. We got to lose. We got to lose every day. We got to wake up and say, followers lose, right? And that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean you can't ever win again. Doesn't mean you go into a sports game and say, I got to lose, right? Followers lose. You go to job, your job and your boss says, why are you doing horrible? Followers lose, right? No, that's not what it means. You're still faithful. You still put in an effort, but it means you lose to the things of this world, right? When you're, when you're feeling tempted to allow your thoughts to wander to things that are wrong, impure, adulterous, you say, nope, followers lose. I don't entertain that. That's what the world says is okay, just do it. Nope, followers lose. I'm not doing that, right? When you are tempted to use all this great money that you have earned for yourself, nope, followers lose. God says that person near you needs a car. That person needs a home. That person needs a meal. I gave you that money so you could lose it for them. Followers lose. Otherwise, we're just fans. And when we live and share a version of Jesus and the church with other people that isn't about losing, we're just telling a myth. And myths, what do they do? They create fans. Fans will never find the gate because they never even knew it was there, let alone that it was narrow. But we need to find it. And if you're like me, you want to find it. So we're almost there. You might be thinking, whew, that's heavy. So what do I need to do? I want to close with two invitations today. And they're actually invitations that are liberating. It's not condemnation, it's hope. And the first one is, where in your life do you need to lose today? If you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, 
But you realize that you often slip into that fan category. You live more like a fan if you're honest with yourself. Living more for this life than for eternity. Then where is God wanting to help you lose today to get back on the straight and narrow path? And for some of us, losing just sucks. And it might not even be a sin issue, right? Life's going great. Can't Jesus just be happy with that? No, because he wants you to know him. And he wants you to know you. When you lose for Jesus, you become a new person. You're able to do and feel and be more than you ever have before. You learn to lose your pride and impatience with life. You don't care for worldly comfort. You're not striving to please anyone or be accepted by anyone because you live in constant acceptance and approval. So for some of us, what we need today is discipline to lose. God might be asking you, to lose something that's taking your eyes off of eternity and fixing them on yourself. I mentioned a few things already. It might be a bad habit, a way of thinking, a hobby or activity, a friend or relationship that is not life-giving. God might ask you to lose some of your time and energy. Finally, invite your neighbor over for supper who doesn't know Jesus or serve people who are worse off than you, struggling with homelessness or addiction. He might even ask you to lose some sleep just get up 20 minutes extra so you can start your day asking him, God, help me see what you see. Help me to do what you say. He might ask you to lose some money, meet a need. As I mentioned, someone near you needs a car, needs a home, needs a meal. You can make it work. Maybe you need to lose some comfort. Step out and share your faith with someone. Share why you follow Jesus. If that's you, then God wants to help you today. He wants you. He wants to help you store up treasure for heaven. He wants to partner with you in sharing his love with those who are broken to discover why you and they were created. What's the God gift inside each of us? For others here, you might be on the flip side. You might be on the other side and you feel like you've actually lost enough already. You've lost innocence. You've lost love. You've lost a relationship. You've lost your health or finances. The world has really beat the snot out of you and you already feel like a loser. And now I'm saying you need to lose some more. I am, actually, but not heartless. Maybe God wants what he wants you to lose today is your hurt and shame. See, part of losing to this life is shedding off all the grime and muck that this world has tried to cake on you. God wants you to lose your shame today because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He wants you to lose hopelessness and despair because he promises hope and a future for all who follow him. And if you ever experience any sort of doubt or you ever question God's goodness or existence and you feel condemned for that, he has grace for that too. The enemy would love to make you feel like a phony. He doesn't call you a fan. He accuses you of being a fake. But God wants you to know that there is mercy for those who doubt. And he wants you to lose your guilt today. You don't have to walk away. You don't have to try and hide. He wants you to lose your rejection so that you can live in acceptance. And the good news is, we're almost done. We never lose alone. Jesus promises to never leave us or forsake us. He promised that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Losing is a lifelong process because we're always putting off the world and putting on righteousness but here's the thing you and i we're in good company we get to lose together that's what the church is we're just a bunch of losers right we show up together we carry each other's burdens we lose together when times get tough 
we strengthen each other. We don't have to lose alone. So if that's you this morning, here's what we're going to do to close. We're going to have communion together. Because communion is God's lifelong invitation to us to come to his table again. Lose our guilt and shame. Lose our pride and arrogance and receive mercy and grace to follow him once again. Jesus lost his life, broken body, shed blood so that you and I can find strength and comfort to keep following him. He lost so we could gain. Thank you for joining us today for the Church of Rock Calgary podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us or have any questions, please email info at cotrcalgary.ca.